Okay. Broadcasting since 1994, you are listening to KPSU, Portland's College Radio, streaming worldwide 24-7 at kpsu.org. Uh, Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Emily Nelson, and today I will be interviewing your hosts, Lily and Maddie. Hi. Hi. (laughs) We're switching things up today. Uh Lily and I both graduated, so we have our our new wonderful intrepid host turning the tables on us. (laughs) Now we're in the hot seat, so... But yeah, we and we are we have another new host as well, Patricia, and we'll probably maybe have a third one too in the fall. So yeah. and if you're interested, just we tell us at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. So yep. So you both recently graduated from PSU with honors degrees in history. Mm-hmm. Um, Maddie, let's start with you. How did you choose your history degree? I have always loved history. Um, and I think for a long time I didn't realize that it could be a career. And I actually started college, actually I'll go back to high school. I had some really wonderful history teachers in high school and I participated in various events like a National Geographic Bee and the Young Historians Program and other things, but I always figured, you know, what can you do with history? So when I first went to college, I went to school in Maryland and I actually was doing sociology with plans to do social work. Um, And then for other reasons, I transferred back to PSU and I decided all right, this is already like a transitional phase or whatever, as cliche as that is, so I may as well just start taking history classes um, because I love it and why not? And then, you know, I met more wonderful professors and saw that, wow, this is really something that you can make happen, so I just stuck with it. Lily? Um, Yeah. So I also, I guess I would go back to high school. Um, I'd always liked history. I liked the American Girl books. Um, And, yeah. And I, yeah, so Samantha, I have her too. She was great. But, um, and I had, I really liked Kaya. And yeah, but I, so I had the American Girl books. And, but I think I never really thought much about history either as like career wise. I was more into writing. I wanted to be like a really uh, protege, published young writer because that's what every 10 year old wants to do. So, but when I was like 15, I competed in National History Day and I was homeschooled. So I just heard about it from a friend and I competed in it and it was a project on the Bonneville Dam called A Change for Better or for Worse and through that I really got into more of actually studying history and then I went to Clark College and I took a lot of history classes but I was also really involved in writing so I went kind of back and forth back and forth eventually I decided I liked writing in English more for fun than as a career so I decided on history and I kind of knew it was going to be weird uh, career-wise, was not going to be like making a lot of money, maybe. But I did. I still wanted to do it. So, yeah. Um, Maddie, what was your focus? So my focus is in environmental history mainly. There's a lot of overlap between some economic history and progressive era politics. My thesis was on um, the the various f- development phases of Forest Park between 1905 and 1950. Um, which is really, it's kind of a wild ride. But my, that's really my interest is the intersection of economics, politics, and environment, specifically in recreational planning in, in America. Lily? Yeah. So my focuses uh, throughout PSU have been 
um, in public history, which is museums, national work in national parks, like nonprofits, oral history. It can take public history. It can take on a lot of forms. Um, and then uh, in indigenous history, and and I've done a little bit of work in Arab American history. But my thesis was on a very specific um, area of indigenous history, specific, specifically on indigenous mounds, mostly in the South and the Midwest. So, yeah, those are my focus is somewhat variant, but mostly indigenous history. Yeah. I know I often get asked as a history major, "What are you going to do with that?" So what are you guys' plans now that you've graduated? I know my plan eventually down the line, specifically for history, is going to be a Ph.D. program. Um, I want to keep researching and writing, and I want to do books and all of that um, and teach at a university. I think that's I have a pretty, in my mind, a pretty standard trajectory of the Ph.D. research educator path. Um, I would also say a PhD is eventually down the line, but probably won't be applying until next fall. Um, originally the plan was last fall, and then it was this fall, but now it's next fall. And uh, I would say that I want to get a PhD mostly because I want to do more research. I'm not 100% sure if I actually want to teach, maybe a, little, a, bit, a bit on the side, but I'm more interested in using <clears throat> the PhD in some sort of maybe public history work. But... Um, I still need to think about it in the next year, but I do know I want to not stop at a BA. So, yeah. So you both have very impressive, uh, let's call them resumes, uh, mm -hmm. with internships, many jobs, awards. How did you guys find these internships, and how did you make time for them? I think for me it was more meeting people and seeing what opportunities they had. Um, I never use the Handshake or whatever PSU's online internship finding is, so I can't speak to that. Not saying that it's not a great resource, I just happen to never use it. Um, yeah, it was ma mainly word of mouth, honestly. So I think going to those office hours and actually talking to your professors about what opportunities they know of is really important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's the best advice that I have, is that people really want to give you internships and people want you to volunteer and want you to participate in things but you just have to make the connections so I think if you're interested go go to your go to those office hours or, or reach out to the to your resources so my first internship which led to my now job at the confluence project that was I got through being in a class, um, an oral history class with Katie Barber, and we were working with Confluence, and they needed, they advertised for an intern. I actually didn't get the paid internship, but I got an internship anyway, and it led to a paid internship and a job. So it worked out. But through that's kind of an example of they don't really, a lot of internships don't necessarily come through handshake. I mean, they may, but you can co they can come through classes or your professors or um, like my second internship with the Friends of Fort Vancouver. It was with a woman who had worked at Confluence. I just just offered to me because she knew me. So, I think making those connections and also, um, I think a lot of students don't get internships because they have this idea that internships are always unpaid. And while I did work an unpaid internship for about a couple months before it was paid, most internships have been paid. And I would say, don't give up on internships. Try to find one that pays. Uh, talk to your professors. They can help you find one that pays because. 
it's true. A lot of us don't have time for an unpaid internship because we were what we work, but we need money. So don't give up because of that, basically. Yeah. Um, so I know, Lily, you were president of Phi Alpha Theta, and you guys organized a lot of outside-of-school field trips. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently, I think, the Angel Abbey field trip. Mm-hmm. How do you come up with ideas for those? So there's a lot of brainstorming. We have a, <clears throat> a team of at least three. Um, yeah, it's mostly been three in these past years. Um, I've been president for two years, um, and I've had the same vice president, which has been nice. Um, but yeah, so we kind of, the first year we kind of came up with a formula uh, for our, we came up with this uh, panel discussion where we had panels on relevant events and tying them to history. So we had one in 20, the 2016 uh, to 17 school year on protest rights and social movements which, of course, was very relevant. There was a lot of protests going on in Portland at the time. And then this last winter, we had one on immigration, immigration, refuge, and sanctuary. And our interdisciplinary panels um, of history professors and also maybe people from sociology or administration or like indigenous studies, depending on the topic. And so that formula, after we came up with it the first year, was nice because the second year we could just take it out and use it. Um, and then... For field trips, um, I think we generally think of places we would like to go because we figure other yeah. people would want to go, um, and like Mount Angel Abbey, uh, Fort Vancouver. Um, we had the PSU archives and once that was you know easy to get to, and we get. And then we usually try to make sure the we always have made sure the field trips are free for students, so uh, either file for theta pays admission fees or they're donated. Um, but so yeah, a lot of brainstorming. We have three of us and our advisor, and usually a couple other people. We just throw out ideas, and then organizing. I just try to. I just keep track of everything, and works out <laughs> yeah. somehow. I'm not. I'm always kind of worried it won't, but it, it does. So yeah. Uh, Maddie, I know you do these great archival like mini projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one about the Ondine Telescope. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Because I don't know that. Everyone knows we had a telescope. <laughs> yeah, so a little uh, context there. I work for the Capital Projects and Construction Department, which is the body here at PSU that builds all the buildings and maintains all the buildings, more or less, along with a couple other departments. Um, and so I work in the archive down there. I'm a technical writer and I'm an assistant archivist. And most of my job is doing records management. As a public institution, we have to have records easy to find and accessible. Um, so I do a lot of, I mean, essentially it's like digital librarianship. Um, so I come across a lot of cool history, fun facts and stories that I don't necessarily get to share in the same way that somebody at maybe Oregon Historical Society um, or a, a public history person would get to do because my job is to organize the records. It's not necessarily to interpret with the exception of the archival image emails that you mentioned. Um, so basically we have so many fun stories and I work in a department that is not a history related whatsoever. Um, so I figured it would be really fun to start sending out little emails showing some scans or images of, of fun tidbits of Portland state history. And there are some weird ones <laughs> like the telescope. Um, so in the late nineties, PSU's um, chemistry and physics departments were looking to improve the astronomy sub program. 
uh, I don't know if it was a major or minor or what, but they wanted to have a telescope housed in a fiberglass dome placed on top of the roof of the Ondine residence hall. Um, and it was this huge back and forth about who was going to pay for it, um, whether or not a telescope could actually be on the roof of a building downtown, which it turns out that it really couldn't because of the vibrations. <laughs> um, seismically, tall buildings have to move a little bit, uh, which means that they're not the right place to put a telescope. Um, and so all of the equipment was actually ordered. So it all came in but they couldn't put it on the roof of the Ondine building. So instead they put it in the basement of Science Building One, the full assembled dome, which could fit two people in it. It was a big, huge thing. And there are some really great pictures of, of researchers in the dome looking out, but they're in a basement classroom. So it's really hilarious <laughs> and just ridiculous. And um, So eventually the dome was sent down to the Pine Mountain Observatory and we're pretty sure that it ended up at the scrapyard and was sold for parts. <laughs> um, but it's, Stories like that of, you know, Portland State, like any institution, has an idea of what it wants to be, what it could be, what it should be, but then, you know, financially, what is actually feasible is usually the wrench that gets thrown into those plans. And that's that's the moral of pretty much every single one of those stories that I come across is like, this was maybe a great idea, but someone has to pay for it. Let's get into your theses a little sure. bit just because you spent so much time on them um how long did they take you first of all mine started as a um, seminar paper for a course I took with Catherine McNair on urban environmental history um so I actually ended up working on it for about two years which is like a year and a half longer than most people do um so it started really looking into the Lewis and Clark Exposition in 1905, which was a World's Fair that was held in Portland. And I was really curious about what that event contributed to the later development of Portland, because Portland experienced a pretty massive economic and population boom in the decade following. Um, and through that, I found this really amazingly bizarre story about this man named Lafayette Pence, who was a developer from Colorado, who through some loophole, gained the water rights to Balch Creek, which is the creek that runs through Forest Park in the McClay Park section. At the time, it was just called McClay Park, and it was expanded later on. So he claimed water rights, and he used the water from the creek to hydraulically level what is now the Willamette Heights and Portland Heights neighborhoods. So those used to be very steep hills, and the reason that they're level is because of him. So he basically tore down the hills without using permits, without getting permission from the city. He was actually denied right to do that. And it, it was just this whole saga. And it was just so fascinating to hear the story about how Portland, which was very much on this precipice of whether it was going to be the Wild West, like it was the 50 years prior, or if it was going to be a major metropolitan law and orders type city, um, which it more or less eventually became going into the progressive era. And so you have people like Lafayette Pence who really wanted to do whatever he wanted and develop um, and really embrace boosterism. And then you had people like Mayor Harry Lane who was like, no, you have to do this by the books. Um, and there's this back and forth for about 50 years about who had the right to use certain spaces and what 
those spaces would end up being. So eventually that area became Forest Park, which is obviously a very highly celebrated um, natural urban space, but it's also a highly managed space. And all of those trails and all of the structures within them were very, very um, clearly and Oh, the word is escaping me, but they're, 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 they're there and they look the way they do for a reason. And so I was really interested in that moment of, we want the vision of wilderness without the chaos of wilderness. Um, so that's, that's sort of the more esoteric um, summary of my thesis. Thank you, Maddie. Lily? Yeah, so my, mine started in spring 2016, and I got it onto PDX Scholar last like, September or October. And um, so with honors thesis is in the history department, you take a four-quarter sequence, basically, or four-credit set of sequ sequence, and you do one that's in the spring, usually before your senior year, you're basically... Um, reading, getting ideas, getting, figuring out what it's going to be, and then you, then you write it. So uh, mine started looking more just, I was really interested in Cahokia, which is this site in Ohio um, of Native American uh, mounds, and there's about 80 mounds at the site, and there used to be 120 before they were like plowed or destroyed or through other means, and it's a national, that's a world, um, UNESCO heritage site now and everything, so it's protected now. But I was really interested in it because I remember I read an article about it when I was like 16, and I was like, why don't I know about this already? Because these mounds are like 100 feet tall. Like, we know about pyramids. Why don't we know about this? So I'd always been interested in learning more about it. And basically, my thesis evolved a lot, but it ended up looking at uh, what, what people were Right, how scholars in the 17th, earliest 20th century were looking at the mounds and how they were thinking people built them. So basically, from roughly the 17th to the early 20th century, the prevalent scholarly and public conclusion was that Native Americans were incapable of building the mounds. And so they said, oh, Welsh settlers built them, the lost tribes of Israel built them, uh, Hindus built them, um, and or Atlanteans. Uh, so... The, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. of course, you the know. The city of Atlantis is in Iowa. <laughs> of course, you know. And then, so, um, but the most prominent theory was that a mysterious and lost white race had built the mounds, and then it had hence been exterminated by the, quote, modern Indian. Um, so through these theories surrounding the mounds, like, three points really emerged. One, that these alternate theories gave an insight into racial ideas at the time, Two, that the theory that Native Americans had not built the mounds gave justification for Indian removal. And three, the misconception of the mounds contributed to the physical decay of the mounds. And it was really very fascinating how and horrible how these ideas about the mounds really played into the larger, like, Manifest Destiny narrative of the time. Like, Jackson, Andrew, President Jackson, uh, even used the fact that the idea that the, a white race had been exterminated is justification for his Indian Removal Act, so it all sort of ties together. Um, but really, the thesis really evolved. So that is basically the little summary of mine. Um, and I know we were talking about it earlier. You mm -hmm. said there are no 100-foot mounds in the Pacific Northwest. What no. do we have? So in the Pacific Northwest, um, in terms of like ancient spaces for indigenous people, 
Uh, the one that I would definitely point you to is Slilo Falls, which is not able to be seen anymore. Um, and it is just not that far from Portland, about two hours near the Dalles. And it was water, well, you know, waterfall in the middle of the Columbia River before it was dammed. And for tens of thousands of years, Native people have been coming there to fish and to trade. And it was also very uh, sacred in terms of religion as well. And uh, in 1957, it was flooded by the Dalles Dam. So the falls are still there. They're just underwater. And, of course, the river is like a pool now. It's very calm. There's no rapids. There's no falls. But they are, they are there. And hopefully they will come back someday but, and we can see them again. But that would be the spot that I would point people to. Great. Thank you, guys. Um, and if you guys are interested in reading either of their theses, they're on the PSU PDX Scholar website. Mm -hmm. You can go ahead and take a look. They're really interesting. So I know that I not only scholarly study history, but also um, in my spare time, mm -hmm. I like to study history. Do you guys have any favorite historical sites that you've been to that you could tell us about? Um. So when I was in Scotland last year, and I never traveled abroad, so that was, I haven't even traveled hardly out of Oregon and Washington. Um, so that was a pretty amazing experience because everywhere you look in Scotland, there, like I'm not kidding, there's a castle almost in every town. It might not be a very big castle, but it's a castle. And so I went there and I went through to a lot of different castles, Stirling Castle, um, Eileen Donan Castle, uh, and... Edinburgh Castle, which was totally, you could hardly move in Edinburgh Castle. There's so many tourists. But my favorite place was this um, little, little castle, almost more like a turret, but, turret, but it was in Aberfeldy, um, and it was 1250 when it was built, supposedly. And my uh, one of my internship supervisors, uh, Mary, who we actually interviewed on this podcast, Mary Rose, um, she knows somebody who owns the castle. <laughs> they bought the ca they bought this castle, and it's currently being like restored. So she connected me to Pat, who is the guy restoring it right now, gradually. Um, and me and one of my friends and classmates in Scotland, we just took the train down to towards um, one town, then we took a bus to Aberfeldy, and we met up with him, and he took us to the little castle. And it's just, you know, two stories. Um, and apparently Robert. The Bruce or something used it as a lookout at one point, um, and there's supposedly a ghost there as well. So, but it was very interesting. I think that was my favorite because it wasn't. It was so different because it wasn't like a historic site maintained by Scotland or maintained by a national park, and there wasn't any tourists at all because you have to drive up a tiny little road to get there, and it's missing half the roof. And it was just it was really great. And I think and there was just something very interesting about that so I think f I have a couple that immediately come mm -hmm. to mind I think if we're talking about f like foreign places mm -hmm. I would say Elsinore in northern Denmark which is mm -hmm. the the small town and the adjacent castle that Hamlet was based on was is pretty amazing I mean it's the castle is just absolutely stunning it's like something out of a Disney movie and the little town is great and it's very touristy, um, but beautiful, and you can see Sweden across the water, and that, that was great. I've been there a couple times. Um, in the U.S., 
the two that come to mind are Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, which is a, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because they have living, you know, reenactors walking around and, and reenacting the John Brown raid and all sorts of stuff. Um, but it's also really beautiful. The Shenandoah cuts through and it's gorgeous. And last time I was there, it was like 110 degrees. So I don't think I got to really experience <laughs> oh it gosh. as much as I wanted because no. historical authenticity means no air conditioning. Um, but I really liked that. I thought it was very mm-hmm. cool that the entire town is a living reenactment, yeah. which I know people have a lot of opinions on, but I thought it was very cool. And then um, I recently went down to see my mother in Arizona, and we went to the um, the Painted Desert, which mm-hmm. Route, 66, Route 66 used to cut through. Um, I mean, the, the remnants of it still does, but they have some really interesting layers of history so they have a site from the 14th century that you can go see and um there's glyphs and all sorts of stuff in a pit um that was used for cooking and so they have this um i don't know if you could really call it ancient history but you know a couple centuries old and then you have um that area was obviously route 66 and it was really popular and then there's all you know all of the tourist and capitalist implications of route 66 and then the national parks presence more recently and then also it, it borders Navajo land so it, it had some layers that I thought were really really interesting so I think that those are the ones that really come to mind and I would just to add to like locally Fort Vancouver like when you're talking yeah. about layers and maybe think of it because there's indigenous history there there's the Hudson's Bay Company history and then later there's the American Army history and you know for there's some room perhaps for improvement but for a site like that they do a pretty good job telling the different layers and there is like an OPB documentary on it if you want to watch it but um that that's another one that I think locally you can just go over and see instead of the little tiny castle in Scotland yeah (laughs) I've also I've been really impressed at Astoria lately I think Mm. that their tourist economy has really facilitated some new interpretive sites. If you get a chance to go to the Canning Museum there, it's actually really interesting, a history of, of coastal Oregon's economic and industrial history is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's like on this little wharf so you have to drive over this bridge and there's like a brewery and stuff next door so you can get your history <laughs> and your beer in one. Um, I know you guys were involved in a lot of projects here at school. Do you guys have any most memorable or any that you'll always remember? I think we were both participated in one this spring, which maybe I'll let you talk about if you want to. Um, That's my water bottle. (laughs) I did two a couple terms ago that were actually in the same class. One was we actually had Dr. Vivek Shandas talk about the Canopy Story Project, which was a, a digital mapping of all of the trees in Portland that you can go onto a Google map and then write your own personal history or relationship to that tree, which I thought was very interesting, and um, I think I'll forever think that that's super cool. And then that same class, I did a geocache where we, um, if you don't know, geocaching is basically little, it's like a grown-up treasure hunt, basically, so you use an app to find little, um, we used uh, waterproof match cases mm-hmm. um, like ne- next to trees of some historical significance with the history of the tree written on waterproof paper inside of the box. So we, we did those and that was interesting. It's an interesting little subculture. So it was like <laughs> we get some tree history and we get the, a little glimpse into the Pacific Northwest geocache world. So that was, mm-hmm. that was interesting. Yeah, I admit it too. 
finding Emily before this, that when I was 14, I made my parents go to a geocaching convention in Seattle, so... Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's always fun. Yeah, it was it's not fun. my subculture doesn't mean it's not a good subculture. If you're especially if you're like 14, you're gonna really be into it. But yeah, um, so me and Maddie were both in a class uh, in spring with Dr. Barber, and and we had our uh, Greta Smith, who was a graduate student, was also very involved in that. Um, it is was working on um, documenting racial covenants in Portland in the surrounding metro area. Um, so racial covenants are basically covenants in a deed that specify that someone of a certain race cannot live there. And like, for example, a covenant that we still have today might be, a restriction we have today might be, you can't build a chicken coop in your suburban uh, yard. You, you, know, you can't um, op- operate a restaurant out of your house if you live in this neighborhood. Um, but prior, you know, what was the exact year again? Prior to 19... 1940s. 1940s, yeah. They, it was perfectly legal to say that no one other than the Caucasian race can live in this um, neighborhood or in this house. And so there are a lot of those in Portland. If you have an old house, it's prob- it could very well be in your deed. Um, even if it's newer, it might be in your deed because uh, the neighborhood could have had that restriction. Um, so we were in that class, and it was... Ex- I mean, it was a very meaningful and very interesting project to do. We worked with the Vanport Mosaic in the city of Portland. The city of Portland is wanting to use this to create a, a map. Um, and so you can actually like, read more about this project in an upcoming Oregon Historical Quarterly article, I think their fall issue, um, that's talking about the class. And if you want, you can go to restrictedpdx.wordpress.com and read more about the project as well. But bit of promotion here, but if you do have an old house, like, check it out. Um, but w- we got to work in a variety of media uh, to work in that. Like, it was public history can be very different from regular history. You aren't writing, like, just a 10-page paper at the end of class. You might be working on an exhibit for your booth at the Vanport Mosaic. You might be working on a guide for people on how to find their deed and how to find the covenants. And it was a, it's a very like, good way to see how history can actually be beneficial to the community as well. So, yeah. I have sort of a fun question. Mm-hmm. If you guys could pick a different focus mm-hmm. in history, any focus, what would you guys pick? Ooh. I have mine. Okay. I would definitely do medieval. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so interesting. I think part of it is, I mean, it's, it seems kind of like a ridiculous time period. <laughs> like, it was just a, a, a you-know-what show. Yeah. Like, and I love that. And I also love the archiving, the right. dig. And it's so hard to, to come by new primary sources, and I think that would be really cool. Obviously, my research is on forest parks, so, mm-hmm. like, in, you know, 1950, so there's people with, like, first-hand accounts. So that's, it's just very different, but I just think that it would be very cool to dig through old manuscripts and try to uncover an, an era that there's not much known about. Um, I would do, I'd probably do Scottish history, and again, like, more older Scottish history, and again, the idea that you have, um, you know, all these, like, just different kind of sources to work with, like, castles and whatnot is very interesting, but uh, I think I would do that, or... On a more serious note, also, um, 
I did a bit of work in Arab American history in my research seminar, and I actually found that was very interesting, and I would be interested in doing more work on that. So probably Scottish history or Arab American history. Yeah. All right, well, I've had a great time doing my introductory interview with you today. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you are a great interviewer. <laughs> so, well, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to learn, listen to more podcasts, you can go to SoundCloud slash Beyond Footnotes or kpsu.org slash Beyond Footnotes. Um, and, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm.